So when I come to speak in the evenings, I appreciate having just a, a moment to express my own gratitude and really indebtedness and appreciation to the Buddha for his teachings and his practice and the immense and transformative gift of these teachings and practices that he offered to, to us all, in fact. I'd like to speak today, this evening, about one of the central and primary themes that the Buddha referred to again and again, that he placed right at the heart of his understanding. And it's something that the, the Buddha called or spoke of as the elephant's footprint. Interesting, the phrase. The elephant's footprint is the footprint which encompasses all other footprints. And he used this phrase to describe the truth of impermanence, the reality of change. And I'd like to reflect on the significance of this truth, this teaching, this territory for us. All that is arising is subject to passing. All that comes, goes. We know this, perhaps to a significant degree. And yet, we are asked in these teachings and practices to consider and to reflect upon the significance of this. The truth of change is something that dominates the world of things, the world of experience. And I sometimes, when reflecting on this theme, like to in a way, subtitle the topic, what it means to live in rental accommodation. Because this is, in fact, the nature of our existence. About, um, I think it's almost 16 years ago now, my wife Catherine and I came back to the UK after living a couple of years in America at a retreat centre and uh, I'd been working there. And we didn't have many material resources, having both been quite committed and devoted to Dharma practice and Dharma service for a good number of years at that point. And we were very fortunate and uh, grateful to be offered a place where we could stay in a, a small, well, actually not that small, a wing um, on a large um, country estate where... There was a, uh, a Buddhist community nearby in the building and we were offered this place where we could stay. And it was actually a very fortunate situation for us. We didn't have to pay rent. We just had to, one or two minor duties, keeping a, um, a kindly eye on the elderly gentleman who also lived in the, in the building and who had uh, donated the building as a, as a trust or made a charity out of it. And after we'd lived there quite happily for about a year, the, um, the kind folk who'd come to us and offered us this place to stay came up to us and asked us if we would, and very kindly, politely asked us if we would leave. And they were starting a, a college there, and um, we needed to go. So we left, and we were, for 
pretty much a year moving between this place and another place, never quite settling. And then some good friends of ours who we'd known for some years and spent time in Asia with, they were buying a, a lovely house, a large, quite a, quite a large property. And they said, would we like to come and live with them? And, you know, it seemed like a wonderful opportunity. It was, again, very much uh, serving us, offering us some stability, it seemed. And we lived together with these friends uh, for about a year and a half. And then one of the regular meetings that we had with our friends, they spoke to us about the fact that they'd like it if we'd now move out. And it was uh, kind of interesting, this sort of uh, mild deja vu effect. But uh, we didn't take it too personally. We kind of understood that yeah, sometimes people want to have their own home back. And it's not the same when you've got other people in it. But this experience, it, it's, it's quite... Um, I think useful to reflect on these kind of experiences that we can have in life where something is offered and how lovely and then at some point it's asked to be returned and in this way we are born into the world we didn't kind of ask but we were somehow it seems invited to come here and at some point the Reality is that we, the, the fact that we're living in rental accommodation becomes apparent because the landlord, who's rather unpredictable, will tell us that actually it's time to hand this rental property back, this body, this mind. It's rental property. We don't get to keep it forever. And so we are asked to contemplate what this means for us. And the phrase that's used, which is quite, I think it, it, it really cuts to the heart of the, of the territory for, for me, certainly, and maybe for you too. It's one of the reflections that one is invited to regularly bring to mind. Some of the things the Buddha suggested, it's really helpful if we, on you know, frequent occasions, contemplate this, that all that is mine, beloved and dear to me, that I will be parted from. And this is so. All that is ours, beloved and dear to us, we will one day be separated from this. Whether through intention, whether through accident, whether through conscious choice, or the simple and inevitability or inevitable encounter with death, in which things Everything, in fact, will have to be let go of. Now, the acknowledgement of this, it's not inappropriate as we turn our attention to this that we might experience some sense of sorrow, some sense of grief, some loss indeed. And certainly in the, ex in the experience of being parted from that which we care about, sorrow, grief, loss, uh, not in any way inappropriate. But it's actually the way we experience the, the care and the love in our heart when exposed to the absence or the loss of or the death of that or who we care for. So that depth of caring that we can experience as sweet and lovely and delicious in the presence of what we love is experienced as really quite sore and painful and at times hard to hold in the absence or in the loss of what we love or care for. 
And so although we know about this, there's a way in which it's very easy to not really quite take it on fully in our lives. We're invited to recognize what this means because all too often we only really let this truth in as it's happening or when it's sort of right about to happen or just happen. Then we think, oh my gosh, that's right. But so much of our lives we live somehow, it seems not really in touch with the visceral truth of this reality. And for the Buddha, this was one of the things that moved him in his journey, in his search, when he realized and understood for himself that all human beings, himself and everyone else, are subject to this truth of impermanence, to this limited temporary lifespan, to birth, to aging, sickness and death, as he would often speak of it, this journey of our life that is marked by entering into the world and departing from it at some future date unknown. He, he asked himself, he said, in recognizing this, seeing this, he said, why should I, who am subject to aging, sickness and death, to birth, aging, sickness and death, why should I seek and pursue and chase other things which are also subject to birth, aging, sickness and death. Would it not make more sense that being myself subject to this, to birth, aging, sickness, death, the law of impermanence, I might seek that which was free from this, which was not subject to birth, aging, sickness, death. And this is what moved him to leave the comfortable life in his palace or stately home. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was apparently quite comfortable. And to go out and search in the world around him for teachings, for practices, for understanding. And so this truth is all around us. Change. No one, if we were asked, not just us, you know, adults and reasonably uh, Caring and mature human beings, I would say. And I'm confident in that because you just wouldn't be here. And even if you'd got here, without that being the case, you wouldn't still be here if that wasn't the case. I can assure you. But not just us. Five-year-old children, if you ask them, do things stay the same? Do things remain untouched by change? Maybe you wouldn't quite phrase it that way to a five-year-old. But they know, they understand, they see things change too. And so although it's obvious, even the weather, you know, it was quite hot a couple of days ago, do you remember? Yesterday it rained really a lot, there was flooding locally. Today it was a bit of both. You know, that's just in three days. We're used to it in one sense, we take it for granted. But do we really understand the truth of this? I had what for me was a, actually quite a shocking experience some years ago, coming to teach a retreat here, um, and it was in June, so a little earlier in the year, but we'd had some remarkable sunny weather, you can tell this is quite a few years ago, um, since that hadn't happened until this year for a while, and it had been sunny for about a week or ten days up until this retreat, and so I was packing my bags to bring my things to come over and stay at Guy House for a week, and I was really concerned that I didn't have enough sort of relatively tidy lightweight shirts and things that I could wear when it was really hot because it's not the kind of weather we normally experience. That's not the kind of clothes I really have that many of. 
I was really worried and concerned. I remember packing and putting the things and I think, God, will this be okay? Will I be all right? And about a day or two after I arrived here for this week-long retreat, what, what do you think happened? The glorious sunny weather changed. It started to rain. It got cold. And I thought, first of all, there was a sense of, I was so worried. How, why was I so worried that it was going to be sunny for a whole other week? You know? But I was worried. And then I went back to my bag, and I hadn't brought a single jumper or fleece with me. I didn't have any clothes to keep me warm. I've got tons of those clothes at home. But I didn't bring them with me. And it was just striking, shocking. And I talk about this all the time, impermanence. And yet in that moment, I was completely deceived by the belief that because it had been sunny for seven days, it was going to be sunny forever, pretty much. was the place I was operating out of. Yeah, And it's stupid, it's foolish, isn't it? But don't we do that? Don't we see ourselves doing that so many times? This is something that the Buddha spoke of as one of the fundamental misperceptions that lead to suffering, that lead to our entanglement with life. To see what is impermanent as though it was permanent. To act in relationship to things which are changing as if they would not. And you might notice that that happens here in so many ways. The number of times people have reported or described the experience of sitting. You know, we've been practicing a few days now. Sometimes we might notice that, you know, actually we feel quite calm. The body feels at ease, a sense of openness or spaciousness or even delight arising in the meditation or in the walking. Or, and in that sense of the experience, very quickly and easily can be sensed, oh yes, oh how lovely. And, and the sense of, I'm here. That's what they were talking about. Now I know. And not just do I know how it is now, but yeah, actually I think I should come back and do a longer retreat. This is good. You know, I can really, we start to imagine this wonderful spiritual career extending out into maybe we become a monk or a nun and we're imagining ourselves sitting in robes in a cave in Thailand just filled with bliss. And it's like we're imagining this particular meditation experience is going to continue forever. And at that point, of course, we then realise, oh my gosh, I've completely lost it, I've spaced out, I'm in a world of fantasy and projection and all of that. And then we think, I'm hopeless, I can't do this, it's no good, I might as well give up. And in that moment, we're assuming our confusion or our, our blindness is also going to last forever. And we want to, having moments before planned our lifetime of meditation, it's now, give it up, you know, let me try something else. And we don't see the very quick and subtle movement in the mind to locate the current condition as this is how it is, how it always will be, and to some extent imagine that it was always this way. It's amazing how quickly we do that. You know, when things are difficult, we mostly struggle with them because we're afraid they're going to continue forever. We don't struggle with them because they're difficult, because they're already difficult, and we're, we're here, we're surviving them. We can meet this experience right here, because we're already doing it. What we struggle with is the thought that I can't continue to meet it if it keeps going like this. And then we resist, then we push away, or we contract. But the truth is that the experience arose, and having arisen, it will pass. 
And if we can remember that, we can find there's a lot more space around the challenging territory that we do at times encounter. And if we notice ourselves, just kind of feeling a bit relaxed about or casual about the retreat. It's, oh, yeah, it's been good, it's nice, you know. Oh, maybe I'll kind of just kick back and enjoy this last afternoon and evening, you know, things are going pretty well. Do some more meditation the next time. You know, we're assuming there's going to be a next time. How many of us made plans already for the next retreat? You don't have to put your hands up. You know. I won't be upset if nobody has. <laughs> Another retreat? You've got to be kidding. Huh? But even that would assume that whatever happened here was something we wouldn't want to ever have again as an experience. And yet that wouldn't be the experience the next time, whether challenging or delightful. It will be different the next time for sure. And the good number of you are here, having come back again and again, will know this. So there's a reflection that goes together with this understanding in terms of our engagement, our motivation with practice. It says, you know, these days are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? It's a question to ask ourselves in our lives, not just on a retreat. What am I giving myself? What am I giving my days? What am I giving my life to? We can live, it seems as if, we imagine this life will go on forever. And there's a a wonderful passage from the Bhagavad Gita where a conversation is taking place between Arjuna, who's the, in a way, the hero of the the story, and his charioteer, Krishna. And Krishna being a sort of divine being in the the context of that that story, is uh, also a representation of wisdom. And Krishna asks, sorry, Anjuna asks Krishna, what, with his amazing vision of the world, what does he see as the greatest miracle in this universe? And Krishna's response is that although people see others dying all around them, they somehow believe that it won't happen to them. And we live so much of the time as if it's not going to happen to me. Unless suddenly... It's close. But so much of the time it seems we manage to fail to notice, even if it might be. And the French philosopher, Gaillieu, he said, very pertinently to this, I think, he said, if we know but we do not act accordingly, then we know imperfectly. So if we know and we say, I know things change, I know I won't be here forever, but we don't live in accordance with that, then something in our knowing of it is incomplete, is not actually mature, is not developed. And the practice of insight meditation, and this is an insight meditation retreat, that the unfoldment of insight, of understanding, of wisdom, this is something that comes out of the encounter with our experience directly to actually transform the misperceptions, the misunderstandings that we harbour and that we live under or in accordance with. 
So the journey we're involved in, although it has many ways it could be described, one essential element or dimension of it is the movement from blindness to wisdom. From not seeing the way things are to seeing what is true in a way that leads us to live in accord with it. And this misperception is is powerful for us. It's not something we should just dismiss lightly or in any way kind of blame ourselves for. We have to learn to see carefully. And much of our misperceptions in life arise because we don't examine our experience with enough care, with enough attention, with enough time to really see what it's saying to us. And there's an image I find really useful in explaining how this works. And so you could just, if you could just imagine what it's like if you're driving in a car on a long, straight road. And if you look out of the window, the windscreen in front of you, what do you see at the end of a long straight as you're driving in your car at, I don't know, 60 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour on the motorway, maybe? What you see on the end of a long, straight road Nothing's really changing very much. The horizon stays pretty much as it is. Nothing really comes or goes at the end of the straight. And equally, if you were to look out the back window, and it's not a good idea to do this when you're driving, but if you were to look and look out there for a few moments, what you'd see out the back window on a long straight is likewise, the image wouldn't be changing very much. It's pretty static. But if you look out the side window, right at the point where you are, as you're travelling along in a car at 50, 60 miles an hour, 70, but even at 50, that's uh, 80 kilometres, 90 kilometres an hour, it's moving past so quickly you can't actually see what's there. It's blurred. You can't actually pick out a single thing clearly at that speed. And this is exactly what goes on for us most of the time. Our attention tends to fixate on the future and the past. When we attend to what we think of as the past, we're looking at an image constructed out of fragments of our memory. The past has no, in our memory, no absolute correlation to what happened in the past. It's the pieces of it that impacted us sufficiently that we kind of collected them and organized them into a coherent picture. But to actually look at the past would take the same amount of time as it took to have the past, which we can't do. We can't have all of that as well as what's happening right now. We only get a little bit of it in our memory. And because of that, it's a simple, flat, two-dimensional picture. And it seems fixed. And the only way we can look at the future is to project some image based on those fragments of the past into the future and imagine a future that's either the same as or different than that which was past. We don't have any other options. We can add into that picture, of course, ideas, concepts or images that we've gained not from our personal experience but from other people's that have been described to us or presented. But that information again, tends to be quite static. So when we think about the future, it tends to have a certain fixity of image. When we think about the past, it, again, tends to have a certain fixity to us. It's like being driving on the straight road, 
looking forward or backward. And here in the meditation, what we're invited to do and supported to do is to look right here, to let go of our fixation with the future and the past, what was and what may be. When we do that, what we see is that our experience is changing. It's moving, it's flickering, it's fluid, it's transient, it's dissolving moment after moment. If we really actually tune in, if we allow ourselves to feel with some sensitivity what's going on here, there's nothing solid in it. So looking into the present moment experience shows us and confronts us with the truth of change. The apparent solidity of our experience, this body and mind, If we look at it carefully, what we see, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, feeling, that's it. And they're just pouring in, and they keep coming, and there's more, and there's more, and the ones we've just had are gone, and there's more. And you know, all the thoughts that we've had, all the feelings we've had, all the experiences we've had in our lives, where are they? Where are they? They're gone. They're just completely gone. Even if we have pictures of them, those are just pictures that we can look at. Colours on a piece of paper or dots on a screen. The experience, that, the that that was, is gone. And where are all the experiences that we're going to have? And the days and weeks and years and if we're fortunate, however long our life will be, The thoughts, the feelings, the sweetness, the tenderness, the pain and the joy. Where is all that that we're going to experience, we imagine, in our lives to come? It doesn't exist. It's not in a cupboard waiting for us to go and get it out and say, okay, here's tomorrow's package. Um, What have we got? Oh, nice. You know, glad someone put some raisins in my lunchbox sort of thing. It's not going to be like that. And yet somehow we operate as if it is. As if it's there to go to. It isn't. So we might find ourselves in this contemplation, this reflection, just a little sort of more in contact with the the mysteriousness and the uncertainty of being able to fix a sense of who I am or what I am in the midst of all of this that changes. And you know, the Buddha spoke of this. He said, you know, there's nothing fixed you can point to here that you can take hold of and say, this is me. Because it's all changing. It's all moving. There's nothing there that you can say that that's the thing that doesn't change. And the vibration of this reality, of this truth, of this dimension of experience, of life can be quite unsettling for us. It can be quite scary to let ourselves really look at it. So we tend to not look at it. We tend to tidy up all those parts of our world that might confront us with it. So sort of, we don't see so much unless we choose to expose ourselves to or we take ourselves or, or something's happening in our, amongst our close friends or family where we really have to encounter the truth of death. Mostly it's kept tidy and somewhat sanitized. And likewise illness. 
for all the wonderful functionality of sort of hospitals, there's a way in which they're also another world for us. That we don't have to go there. We hope we won't have to. And there's a way in which there's an ongoing process of trying to create for ourselves some kind of bastion or bulwark or defences against the inroads of impermanence, against the impact of this. And we see it in patterns of control, of rigidity, of tightness, of trying to kind of somehow preserve or protect or maintain the conditions that we have or future conditions that we hope for. And we invest in these circumstances, experiences, possessions, people, views, situations, in the hope they'll give us security. But they can't. There is no ultimate protection from the truth of change to be found in the world of things. Because all things that we find are subject to it. How could they protect us from it? Helen Keller, who was born... Actually, I can't remember now. (laughs) I'm not sure if she was actually born, but she certainly lived a life deaf and blind. And it may have been early in her life that it came on. I should remember that, but somehow I don't right now. But in any event, that's irrelevant. She lived a remarkable life as a woman who was without sight and without hearing. And she once said, of not just her life, but life, she said, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, and nor do the children of mankind as a whole experience it. In the long run, avoiding danger is no safer than outright exposure. Life is either a glorious adventure or it is nothing. Remarkable words. Life is either a glorious adventure or it is nothing. So we're asked to really enter into this in the spirit of that, to enter into our lives in the spirit of that. This adventure, this journey that we've embarked upon. Of course, the truth of impermanence isn't always something that we experience as creating problems. In fact, it's something we value in all sorts of situations. I mean, of course, things would be a little bit crowded if everybody that had ever been was still here. I mean, imagine if nobody had ever left who came into this room. It would be just a wee bit crowded, wouldn't it? So in that very simple and obvious sense, we're fortunate that people move on. And the people who come here next week will be happy that we've moved on. There might be a few of us still here. When we experience that which is difficult, challenging, painful, hard to bear, the reflection on impermanence can be so helpful. It's like, oh yeah, this is to be born, but it's not forever. Even those things that are really hard, it's a deep losses in our hearts that we feel. The disappointments, the grief, at times the, the anger, 
these experiences and the conditions within which and from which they arose will change, will pass. And we can find some space and courage, in fact, with that understanding, with that knowledge. And if we, if we bring that as a reflection, as a contemplation, not as a way of trying to, it doesn't happen according to our timetable, you know, okay, come on, impermanence. The, the word the, the Buddha used was, um, or the, at least the Buddha's teachings are recorded in Pali, and the, the word is anicca, impermanence, anicca. And um, when one of my teachers, teachers in Asia and in Thailand, he was always say, um, you know, this too shall pass, pen anicca due in Thai. This too shall pass. And yet sometimes we're sort of saying, okay, come on, pass, pass. You know, that's not the point. It's not trying to hurry it along. Because actually, you know, sometimes the way it comes to an end is that the whole thing comes to an end. And we might not want to rush that. And at the same time, the truth and reality of impermanence it's the basis of what we actually are touched by in so many ways. That which is beautiful to us is inevitably so because it has something of that in it. And when one looks at a flower, flowers have something about them because they're just there for a little while. And you know those remarkably crafted fabric flowers you can find in places that you can't tell by looking at them that they're not a flower? At the same time, you know, somehow we feel it. It's not a flower because it's not alive. And to be alive is to be something that's slowly dying. Or not so slowly in some cases. And that a flower actually touches us because of that. And when it's not subject to that, it doesn't have that power to touch us. Though it might look very decorative on a restaurant table. And you know, when we go and watch a sunset, and amazing, that's just... those. Little colours, just the you know the reds and oranges and yellows, and then maybe purples and and all of that. You know, if we see and fortunate to see a sunset, and we stop and think, oh, it's lovely, and I love to look at a sunset. But imagine if it stayed the same for ten minutes. You know, it'd be wow, that's beautiful. Oh, I love the sunset. Wow. Oh, and then hmm, hmm, hmm. I think I'll get a cup of tea. Really. But because it's changing, it's captivating and we can watch it for as long as it goes on if we're free to do so. And it's again, it's that something about the very dissolvingness of it that touches us, that speaks to us. That not just beauty, but something of preciousness. It's because it's not forever that this life is precious. Deeply so. And... For my wife and I, when we, when we got married, this was something that was very much a central reflection for us. And uh, the, uh, we opened the ceremony with, uh, with Catherine singing, a, in a way, a prayer that was, or, uh, that was based on an Aztec prayer. And it, the, the refrain was, the core refrain, only for a short while life has loaned us to each other. This wasn't normally what one speaks about at a wedding, you know. I think for one or two people, maybe it was a little, you know, 
surprising. <laughs> but in another way, for me, still, it's like, but yes, of course, isn't that why this is precious? Because it isn't forever. And we don't know how it will come to be that it ends. But we do know that it will. Whether through choice, decision, accident, or, you know, death. And that sense of preciousness is so important in life. To not, you know, to allow ourselves to open to impermanence is to open to the tenderness and sweetness of this. And for me, captured as beautifully as any way I've ever encountered it in a little plaque at one of the monasteries, a Buddhist monastery in, um, in West Sussex called uh, Chitta Viveka. No. Chittos Buddhist Monastery, and the name translates as the silent or secluded heart. It's a lovely place that I like to visit. And when I first was there many, many years ago, and whenever I go back, I, go to, I saw this little plaque. And it was just under a small bush. And there's a number of them now, but this was the first one that appeared there. And it had a poem. It said, I guess it was a haiku and translate, translated, because the author appeared like it was probably Japanese, but it says, The cherry blossoms cover the hillsides for but a few days. Any longer, and we would not treasure them so. And underneath it, it says, Little Sam, and a single date. And it speaks to me still, though I've spent plenty of visits there and I've talked about it many times. Just that sense of the preciousness of a life that was just one day. Not less because it was that short. Not less. And again, the, the impermanence, that it's not for everness, is a gateway to that deep sense of what we love and care for that is precious in life because it isn't forever. And what also comes with this, with this understanding that it's not forever, is that I think we make our peace with the fact that it's not perfect either, much more easily. When we moved in with our friends, that story I told you at the beginning of the talk, what was very striking to me was we moved into this I thought wonderful house, and it was a wonderful house. And our friends thought it was wonderful too, they just bought it. And we were kind of like, oh wow, how lovely, look at the space, look at what we've got. And I was struck by how our friend's sense was, oh this is wonderful, and look, we could move this, we could put that wall over here, let's open this one up and put a fireplace there. When it's ours, and when we own it, we inevitably think or move towards starting to improve it. When we understand that this life is just borrowed, just rented, we're much more likely to get on with enjoying and appreciating what it is rather than thinking somehow it's for me to make it into something that it's not. Do you get how that works? It's like there's something about the sense of ownership that's predicated on a belief in permanence that this is me and this is mine and yet this body, this mind... These thoughts, this life is borrowed. We don't need to fix it or somehow make it perfect. But we can learn to live in it. It works for that purpose. It really does. It's been doing so all our life. 
So again, recognizing, reflecting on this truth, this reality. There's a beautiful stanza from the Diamond Sutra, which is one of the the teachings of the, the later northern schools of Buddhism. And in the Diamond Sutra, one passage reads, and it's really an invitation to how we should look at, how we should live our lives. It says, Thus you should look upon this fleeting world. A drop of dew, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom and a dream. And that, I find that sort of that cascade of images of things that just disappear, disappear. It somehow speaks to the, the evanescence of life. The very thinness of the, the fabric that holds it into the shape that it's in. That's constantly unfolding into a new, fresh and different shape. And what this says to us, what is the wisdom of this? What does it mean to live in accordance with this truth? It informs our relationship if we allow it to really penetrate into our heart. It informs our relationship to life. And what it says to us is, let go. Let go. Allow this life to be what it is. The things that we might love. Give them space and room to be what they are, for as long as they are. And the things that we find difficult, let them be. Give them space to do what they do, to touch us in whatever way they might. William Blake expressed it rather beautifully in somewhat fewer words than I can ever manage. He said, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. find these words very beautiful, very precise. To bind ourselves to a joy. When we take hold of what we love, we squeeze the very life out of it, the winged life, the sense it's alive, it's in motion, it's moving. When we try and take it and bind ourselves to it, that is actually what crushes the life out of it. Even if we have the thing, we don't have the life that was in it, which was actually what we were in love with or we were touched by. So it doesn't mean we don't allow ourselves to touch. But when something comes, again, that's the intimacy of the kiss. To kiss the joy as it flies. To be intimate with our life. It doesn't mean stand off and go, oh, you know, it's all impermanent. I don't think I'll get involved with that stuff. That's not what's being suggested here. It's like be intimate, be right up there with our life. But know that it's moving and changing. To kiss the joy as it flies. To live on. In eternity's sunrise. What Blake is pointing to there is the dawn of the timeless. Eternity's sunrise. There's something profound being pointed to here. So to just, again, recite Blake's words. With a minor update. She who binds herself to a joy. Does the winged life destroy? 
She who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. These teachings and practices are pointing to something we can discover in life when we allow ourselves to be intimate with this fluid unfolding process and experience. When we allow ourselves to taste the sweetness and the loveliness that at times comes and equally allow ourselves to be opened and we are opened by the by the losses and the disappointments. And they go together. And it's not that because there are those losses we shouldn't love. Of course, we know that. But allowing ourselves to be opened up by this life by this process, by this truth of impermanence and change. As we let go of our demand that life be a certain way, that our experience be a certain way, that we be a certain way, so we start to let go of that. We can't necessarily know why it is or has been the way it has been for you, for me, for us. But what we can do is start to look more deeply into the life that is here, that is now, that is this. To see what we might discover when we're not grasping hold of and we're not pushing away, but we're unconditionally, wholeheartedly present in the very midst of it all. The Buddha, having started out his journey, as I described, with the encounter with impermanence and death. In the fruition and the fulfillment of his understanding, in the depth and remarkable profundity of his discoveries, he said, there is that which is unborn, unbecome, undying. If there were not, there would be no deliverance from that which is subject to birth, aging and death. But there is that truth and understanding which reveals a freedom in life in the midst of all of this. And I had an experience when I was on retreat in in India, in Budgaya in fact, Budgaya is the, the village that's grown up around the tree under which the Buddha sat and woke up two and a half thousand years ago. Though in fact it's now the grandchild of the tree, it's not the same tree, but it's for all intents and purposes the same place and the same tree. And I was on retreat there, having been practicing there the year before and really enjoyed it, having come back. And one of the things I really loved about the monasteries in Asia was the the way that they were a sanctuary for all beings. And so many creatures would come to find refuge in the monastery. Uh, and amongst them, goats and chickens and um, cats and dogs. And life's pretty tough in that part of rural India. It's one of the poorest places on the planet. 
And so animals find it pretty hard to survive sometimes. But in the monasteries, they'd come along and they'd get looked after. And anyway, on this particular occasion, I was doing some walking meditation. And there were puppies running around amongst the, um, the meditators, doing much as we've been doing here, walking back and forth. And these puppies, I really loved them. I really enjoyed them. They'd, you know, when you'd sit down to have your lunch, we'd often be eating outside because it's warm. They'd come up and sort of, you know, want to have a, share some of your food. And if you put it down before you're finished, they'd, you know, help you out with washing your dish. And occasionally they'd even come chasing each other between the meditators, doing a slow walking. The puppies, come along and bump you in the foot to see if you were really mindful or just trying to look good and you know whether you had any balance or not. And I, they just, just so touched my heart. It was amazing, very beautiful experience. And then about, I think, seven or eight days into this retreat, I suddenly realised that I'd been looking at these puppies thinking they were the same puppies I'd been with last year. And it's so obvious, of course. Those puppies have grown up. They're not puppies anymore. But there was something that had so completely taken me in in what was happening. And the sensory was really clear that, yes, these puppies change. They grow up. They are impermanent. Not all of them will have survived of the puppies I knew the year before. But there's something about the puppies. It's like, although the puppies are changing, puppy nature is unchanging. And there's something that shines through the little beings, through their eyes, through their joys, through their yelps of pain and distress and equally enjoyment. And there's something that shines through them, that we see, that we recognize, that fools us into thinking that they, the puppies themselves, are unchanging. And so here as we practice, as we sit, as we allow ourselves to sink more and more deeply into this life, into this moment, into what it is to be, right where we are, we might start to sense that although, yes, everything that we can take hold of is changing, in the very motion, in the very fluidity of this life, There's more that's being revealed than just that. To allow ourselves to feel deeply into the truth of impermanence is equally to allow ourselves to be touched by the truth that is unchanging. The poem I'd like to read, that uh, I'm sure where it comes from, it's by Jane Wellwood, but I first noticed it pinned to the notice board in the coordinator's dining room here at Guy House, and after having not actually managed to stop and read it, having walked past it many times, I eventually did and thought, wow. So um, this is a poem I'd like to share with you. It's entitled The Dakini Speaks, and a Dakini is a, a feminine embodiment of wisdom and spoken of primarily in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And uh, so this, title, this poem is entitled The Dakini Speaks. And Jane Wellwood writes, My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if, if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up 
and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully, like human ripe beings. But please, let's not act so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed, as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion equally precise. Brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for safe passage. There isn't one anyway. And the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let us dance the wild dance of no hope. To not invest our hopes in a security that things subject to change do not offer us. Of course, living in the world, we need to care for and nourish and develop and support many things. And all of that is part of our lives, yes. And none of that has its significance and its value taken away by this teaching of impermanence, of the truth of change. But that we do that engagement, we engage with the world, with what we bring and support and nourish, with the understanding that it's for now we do this, and for what's possible to arise in this, not in order to come to a fixed end point that we can sustain or maintain. Knowing that, understanding that, we can give ourselves wholeheartedly, and at the same time we can, same time, we can allow ourselves to rest Deeply in our hearts. To rest deeply. To allow this heart and mind to sink below the surface. In which things come and go. In which things arise and pass. Constantly and unstoppably. But to come to know the depths of what it means to be. What it is that we are. This we can know, we can discover. The truth and wisdom that reveals freedom in the midst of all of this. Deliverance in the midst of all of this. So let us be wholehearted in this adventure. What else to do? Let's sit quietly together for a few moments.
So may we all, here in our practice, together and in our lives, come to more deeply understand and recognize the changing nature of things, the impermanence of experience and phenomena. And may we equally come to realize, to penetrate and to understand the truth of life that is unchanging. For our own welfare and well-being, for the welfare of all beings. So thank you again for your presence here and for your practice. This is our last evening together and again a precious time to continue being awake and waking up as we are together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.